Yeah, it's our last night in Acts, and it's uh, my last large group. I've been an RUF campus minister for 11 years, the last five of which have been with you, with uh, Penn State. And it has been an honor, a privilege to get to know you guys and to love you and to apologize to you and in all seriousness, um, you guys, you're wonderful. And uh, it is with, it's very bittersweet, um, you leaving, but tonight it just feels bitter, it feels heavy. Uh, I'm really thankful for you. But we've gathered to hear from the Lord, and so tonight we're going to look at Acts 17, verses 14 through 34. So let's read that and we'll pray. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in every marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious, very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Maris and others with him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. Uh, We see it in 
uh, beautiful days like today. We see it in the friends that we have in this room. We hear it in the laughter. Lord, and we ask now that you would help us to see it in the gospel. Uh, we ask that you would dig out for us ears to hear and give us eyes to see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, uh, Acts 17 is clearly not the end of the book of Acts. There was no way we were going to make it all the way through. And if you remember, we had a few snow days that sort of made that journey even harder. But I want to end with Acts 17 because painting with broad strokes, so much of the last part of Acts is missionary journeys, where Paul literally travels the known world to proclaim the gospel to everyone to any and everyone, that he might tell them that the conscience that you have that feels guilty, you can have restored by the resurrected Jesus. You can have a right relationship with your Maker, and it's through the resurrected one. And so here tonight, Paul is in Athens, which the great city uh, maybe a little on decline at this point, but still a major hub in the world. This is the place where you would find great art and great culture and, and high academics. This was still a place greatly respected in the world. And Paul doesn't merely go to see the sights, though I hope he enjoyed them. He goes to proclaim the risen Jesus. Now, Paul has this opportunity over and over again to, to proclaim the gospel, and he continues to make the most of those opportunities. Um, even, we won't really talk about it, but even in the face of mockery, he finishes, and some people mock him. Some people believe. That's the way evangelism often goes. You see, all Christians, on some level, in some way, are called to share what it is they say is their dearest hope in the world, that Jesus is the resurrected one, the maker of heaven and earth, and we have peace with our maker through him. Now, I don't know if your mom ever talks about what they say. They are always saying things. Um, and they say that most people would rather die than publicly speak. And I suspect for a number of us in this room that we would rather die twice than have to share the gospel in an awkward situation. We might rather even don ourselves full of Ohio State apparel then have to proclaim this to somebody and feel the opportunity of being maybe mocked or rejected. Our fear is a serious factor, a demotivating factor when we think of sharing the gospel. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to look at three M's. Really, what is Paul's motivation for sharing the gospel where he goes? And then tonight, I want to see what is his method and then what might be a stretch, I want to look at Paul's movement. So first, what motivates him? Where does desire come from? What pushes him to continue to share the gospel with people that he knows and doesn't know, with people who are friendly to his message and hostile to his message? And I'll tell you what it's not. It's not merely because this is what he should do. He's been told, Paul, you should do this and you should do the right thing. It's not merely because of that. Paul has devoted his life to this. He gets beaten often. He sacrifices his body for Jesus. What has motivated him is not simply the guilt of what he should do. You should do lots of things. 
and you shouldn't do lots of things. And we instinctively know that that isn't a lasting motivation. Think New Year's resolutions. I hate going to the dentist a lot. Um, And inevitably, when I get there and I'm sweating in that chair and they ask me this question, Joe, how's um, how's your flossing coming? (laughs) And I say, "Uh, not as good as it could be. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe sometimes we've got trays of brownies or cookies. You say, you know, I'm going to have one. And you have seven. And you know you shouldn't have seven. And you're like, I shouldn't do that. Why do I always do that? I get it. I should drink less Diet Coke. And I should run more. And I should eat my vegetables. And I should make my bed. And sometimes I do what I should do, but certainly not always, and often not when it is the hardest. And sometimes I'm sitting across the table from you for coffee or lunch, and I say, how are you doing? How's your heart? How are you spiritually? Do you find yourself filtering it through the grid of what you should be doing? Ah, well, I'm not praying as much as I should, Joe. I'm not reading my Bible as much as I should. Do we merely put spiritual issues in the same category of things that we should do or shouldn't do? And to be clear, there are things that we should do. And I would never say that you should not do appropriate things. I'm just saying that merely being motivated by what you should do will never sustain you. It will not keep you going. And this is probably seen most clearly, as clearly as you'll see it anywhere else when it comes to sharing your faith. So what motivates Paul? In verse 16 we read, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, most of us, we know that idols can be lots of things, but our immediate image when we think of an idol is an image, a small wooden, golden, silver statue that some people bow down to. And you still see this in some cultures today, but largely in the West is not something we, we see as much. But you, get, you certainly get the idea that when Paul looks around everywhere, I mean, it looks like it's as easy to spot as an idol as it would be to spot a football flag on game day. They're just everywhere. It's pervasive. It's part of the culture. And the Bible's definition, though, is much broader than simply a statue that you might literally bow before. Uh, Keller says an idol is really any good thing that we make an ultimate thing. So one of the ways that we identify the idols in our lives is by asking, what am I living for? And one of the ways to ask to figure out what you're living for is to say, well, what are your dreams? What do you want for your life over this summer, next year, five years from now? Ten years from now, what is it that you hope for? Is God part of your dream for yourself five years from now, ten years from now? Or are you tempted, like me, simply to think of the right spouse or the right house, the right job, right relationship? See, Paul sees these statues everywhere and he realizes This culture is worshiping the wrong thing, the wrong things. They're they're not just bowing down before them. Metaphorically, they're bowing down before them because they live for them. At Penn State, we may not bow before literal idols, but we are prone to bow before something. 
We bow before our grades. We bow before the the great internships. Do you see sometimes how much they control you even in your relationships with others? See, Paul doesn't merely respond when he sees this. Hey, guys, you shouldn't do this. I cannot believe this has not made the list of things that you should not do. But he does understand that they were made for something altogether better and different than bowing before these idols. So what is it that motivates him? Every single time that Paul opens his mouth in the, in the book of Acts, he says, Jesus is raised from the dead. It's objective fact, reality. His molecules were, were brought back together. His enzymes, his hair started to grow again. He was brought back to life. And it changes everything, especially our relationship with God, our guilt, our shame, our sin, the, the, all the shoulds that we didn't do and all the shouldn'ts that we did. Jesus died for and He was raised victoriously over those things. But it's more than the resurrection. He loves these strangers. He loves them. He doesn't look out and say, gross, look at this awful lifestyle. These people make me sick. He loves them. Notice what else he doesn't do. He doesn't call on the handful of Christians that there may already be in Athens and say, retreat, boycott. These Athenians are a bad influence. You should have nothing to do with them. And neither does he say, and don't handle any of their art. It's dirty too. He engages with them in the synagogues and in the philosophical squares. So his his methodology is flexible. What Paul does is he seeks common ground. When he goes to a synagogue, he says, you believe that this is the Word of God? Oh my, let me show you how the Word of God tells us that the Messiah is coming and I know Him. This passage right here is about His resurrection. In the the philosophical square, He intends to land on the same place, the resurrection of Jesus, but He's looking for common ground. He's not looking to start off with wrong, wrong, wrong. How can we see eye to eye on something and start a conversation and come with me on something? Verse 17 says, every day with those who happen to be there, he proclaimed the gospel. Every day. And Paul wants them to know, he wants us to know, we were made for more than worshiping the idols that seduce us. We're made for more than bowing down before love and power and sex. He knows what we were made for. And he also knows that we weren't just made to be people of faith. He's engaging with people of faith. He knows that God does not smile simply on religiosity. There's no merit in being a person of faith. Verse 22, look, I perceive you are religious, but you're missing it. We were not made to be religious. We were made to love and trust the one God, the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is speculation, but I wonder if Paul were to engage in a modern Western culture, 
if he would say something like, look, I perceive that you care about being a good person. Look, I perceive that you care about what is just and what is unjust. I perceive that you care about these things. Because what he's trying to do is find common ground. There are things that we are naturally going to agree on because we're made in the image of God. And it is the Bible, it is the God of the universe that helps us to make the most sense of the world as we see it and experience it. So here's a question, is it harsh to confront someone whose worldview is wrong? You can certainly confront someone whose worldview is wrong in a harsh way. You can say something right without love or concern. You can say something just to prove a point. But it's actually harsh to say nothing. The Bible teaches us that we become like what we worship. And Paul doesn't quote from Psalm 135, but certainly it's up and running for him. Psalm 135 says, Idols have mouths but they don't speak. And they have eyes, but they don't see. And they have ears, but they don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths, and those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. When you trust in something that does not see or hear or speak, you become like that thing. So Paul, the text tells us Paul is interacting with two philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And Epicureans had this sort of thought, painting with broad strokes. The gods are distant, they're out there, and let's have as much fun as we can. Let's experience as much pleasure as we can while we're here on earth. They're bowing before idols, but they're living for their comfort and their pleasure. And the Stoics, on the other hand, are convinced that life is simply hard. Grind it out, try not to cry. They bow before idols, but they're living for and worshiping self-discipline and their own resourcefulness. And Paul's t- telling them, your philosophies are empty. He says as much in Colossians. These idols will let you down. While the one God of the universe, the maker of all things, offers life. And every idol will make you spiritually deaf, dumb, and mute. And it will lead you on a path to spiritual death. So what purpose does Paul engage the Athenians? He knows that when we worship anything other than the God of heaven and earth, our lives are profoundly disordered. Paul's not merely trying to win an argument with them. He wants them to get off of this disordered trajectory that leads to death, where the wrath of God reigns. Here's what he's saying. The God of the universe is infinitely more powerful and wonderful than any of the alternatives that we worship. But not only that, this God will care for us in ways that our idols never will. He will offer life to us. He will actually give us life in ways that our idols never will. And then in verse 28, he makes an interesting twist he quotes one of their artists to make his point. Not only does he not retreat from the Athenians as if they were dirty, he says, there's something in your art that's right. It's, fu- it's fundamentally broken, but there's something really right about it. 
And then he quotes, in him we live and move and have our being. And in our Bibles, that actually looks like a poem. And that's because he's quoting an ancient hymn to the god Zeus. He's quoting an idolatrous hymn to point away from an idolatrous God to the true and living God. Even your artist reminds you that you are indeed his offspring. You just don't know who he is. And he's showing us that even artists who don't know God will often write things and film things and project things that are beautiful and reflect the world where God reigns. Every piece of art is, will point to God or will reflect Him in some broken way because it's, it's distorting something that's true. And you might think, well, Joe, this may work in a religious culture. This is a religious culture and they're worshiping but our culture seems to be moving away from religion. And I would say that that's probably true and not true, and we won't really get into that. But let's focus, just grant that that's true, and focus on the irreligious segment of our culture. Our culture is always pointing to things that are right and wrong, things that are just or not just. We have a standard. Uh, Ariana Grande, you might be like, it's grande. It's not. I YouTubed her saying how to pronounce her name. It's Grandy. <laughs> She is dominating the top 40 right now, has three songs in the top 15, okay? And she's got a song right now in the top 15 called Break Up With Your Girlfriend, I'm Bored. Here are some of the lyrics. Break up with your girlfriend, yeah, yeah, because I'm bored. You can hit it in the morning, yeah, yeah, like it's yours. I know it ain't right, but I don't care. Break up with your girlfriend, yeah, yeah, because I'm bored. This song is profoundly broken, okay? I wouldn't encourage you to sort of listen and like really get into this, but the point is, even a song that is profoundly broken is not off limits as far as seeing, like, what's, what is the worldview here? How do we see the world? I mean, she's singing about casual sex with someone who's not her spouse, that's broken. And more than that, who already has a relationship with someone else, and she says, ship her off. I don't care about her. I want you, but not even really you. I'm just bored. I'll use anybody. But then she says, I know it ain't right, but I don't care. Which begs the question, well, how do you know it ain't right? And what does it say about us, the part of us that really gets, the, the, you know, that we willingly sometimes do what we know is wrong? and don't care. We get that. We instinctively know there's a right and a wrong. We instinctively know what it feels like not to care about what's right and wrong. We instinctively know that guilt that comes from that. There's a conversation to be had there. One of my favorite movies from last year was A Quiet Place, which reminds us that it is powerful to watch someone sacrifice themselves in meaningful ways for the welfare of others. And when you watch that movie and you leave and you talk to somebody, why was this theme of the movie so powerful? Why did that so resonate with us? It's not hard to see how Jesus can fit into that conversation. The point I'm trying to make is 
We instinctively think with the moral compass that God has given us, even if we often suppress what is obvious by our sin. Paul uses a pagan hymn to say that the God of the Bible makes more sense of your experience. In Him, we move and breathe and have our being. So God creates the world. How, Paul? By His Word. And He's still speaking. And then He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. When God spoke the universe to the universe, it obeyed. When He spoke trees and, and waters and, and solar systems into existence, the creation obeyed. Like the creation, we were made to obey when God speaks to us. You might be thinking, well, Joe, you had this whole should and shouldn't, and that won't motivate. Are you really getting back to what we should do? Why don't you just have another Diet Coke already? Yes and no. Because just because we know there are things we should do doesn't mean that we will. Ariana Grant's right there. <laughs> so, something has to change in us. That's the point. We've already said that we become like what we worship. If we worship the idols of sex and power and money, relationships, fill in the blank, we will become like them. If you bow before sex, we will only see each other and others in terms of their sexuality. If we worship power, we will bully others and exploit the weak. If we worship money, everything will boil down to a price tag, even our relationships. But if we become like what we worship, this is also true of God. Look again at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that Paul is provoked at the idolatry around him. And the same word is used in the Old Testament or translation of the Old Testament when God is provoked by idolatry. The point that, that Luke is making for us in this passage is that in very real ways, Paul is becoming more like God. What God loves, Paul is beginning to love. And what God hates, Paul is beginning to hate. And what provokes God is now beginning to provoke Paul. And so Paul speaks with truth because God is truth, but he also speaks with love because God is love. So why does Paul share the gospel? Why does he do anything for God? It's not merely because he should. The resurrection has changed everything for him. Indeed, his love for others springs from it as well. And Paul tells us one day we are going to stand before the resurrected one as he judges the world. And if you're merely motivated by what you should do, then the thought of Jesus as judge on the last day is terrifying. Or at least it should be. What can possibly make us worshipers of God? God has to convince us that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. 
that the list of things that we should have done and didn't, the list of things that we shouldn't have done that we did, no longer defines us. Jesus died to free you from that record. Jesus' resurrection frees you from your failure as you attempt to go out and share the gospel and you chicken out. He frees you from that failure. We have to be gripped by the resurrection in the same way that Paul was. Why was Jesus raised? Because He died. And why did He die? So that we might be forgiven. And by grace... God will not hold anything against you that has been paid for by Jesus. So this passage calls us to a lot of things. To identify the idols in our lives and to turn from them. It also calls us to encourage others to turn from their idols as well. Because that's what evangelism is. And what will motivate you to do these things? cannot merely be a sense of duty. We need a profound sense of who God is and that He is profoundly for us. And so does everyone else. That's what we all need. The great God who created everything created us and everything that we love in this world. And He has drawn near to us in the real person of Jesus Christ. And He's dealt with our guilt. The guilt of knowing what is right and not caring. And he did this by sacrificing himself greatly for the well-being of others. And it's all of grace, received by faith alone. And when you worship this kind of God, you actually become like him. And just watch. And you will be surprised at the ways that He changes you and makes you more like Himself with a remaining laundry list of things that His grace covers. You were made for this vision of God's love and concern for you in the world to shape your dreams for today and tomorrow, five and twenty years from now. So what motivates God, Paul? It's the gospel. What's his methodology? He's flexible in that. But he always wants to get to the resurrection of Jesus. Lastly, his movement. The very beginning of this passage, uh, the Christians in Thessalonica send Paul to another place. And in a very real way, that's what you guys are about to do with me. You're going to send me off, willingly or not, to... Greenville, uh, South Carolina, and I'm going to go and hopefully, by God's grace, do the same thing there that I've done here, and that is, to the best of my ability, encourage others that God loves them in the person of Jesus Christ. That God is not looking for people to be put together before He will love them or use them. And Paul calls on Silas, and he says, you need to, you need to do the same thing. He calls Silas to join him, but I'm going to call you to do the same thing by staying right here. Or seniors in your next stop, look for ways to love others by showing them the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even using the movies or the songs that you see and experience together as a springboard. Uh, But for the rest of you, keep this family going. 
and continue to love each other and point each other to the Gospel. And continue to offer grace for those who are wrecked by the things they shouldn't have done or the things they should do. They shouldn't do those things and they should do those things, but Jesus has covered everything for those who have faith in Him. And He motivates us to move more in that direction. Welcome Cam and serve with him. Look for ways to engage all around your campus and welcome in a new class. Confront them even with love and grace and give them Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this passage. And we, we thank you for the ways that you are alive and that you move and that you have raised Jesus from the dead for us. And um, we pray that that would motivate us to follow you and to love others well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.